Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have gotten a lot of requests to talk about Maria Montessori. A few. Hundreds. <laughs> yeah. She's on, she's on our listener ideas list multiple times. And the last one just says Robin and about a million other people. Um, I did a Facebook live by myself right before the holidays and, and gave listeners kind of a rundown of what was coming up. And then I said, and then 2017 will be here. We have no idea what's happening. And somebody said, do Maria Montessori. And I was like, funny, you should say that. <laughs> that is actually. I do know what's happening, and and Maria Montessori is it. So she's a subject who's, I mean, she's really close to my heart because I have several very dear friends who work in Montessori schools. But before starting this episode, I knew so little about, about her life that I was about 50 years off in terms of when I thought she lived. Uh, if you are a certain age, meaning, you know, Holly's in my age or older probably, <laughs> You probably associate her with free-spirited parents from the 60s and 70s, as from when Montessori became really popular in the United States. But her work goes back way earlier than that. Uh, and education also was not her only field. We do have one super quick note, and that's that a lot of the terms that are used to describe children and their uh, development 100 years ago are not terms we would use today. And in some cases, they would be insensitive or even offensive. And this is particularly true because a lot of Ma- uh, Maria Montessori's theories as an educator started out with work with children who were developmentally disabled or financially disadvantaged or both. So this affects everything from titles of her predecessor's books to quotes from her own work. And if you're inspired by this episode to go learn more about her, it also implies to works that were written by people who actually worked with her. Um, like one of the most cited biographies of her is Maria Montessori, Her Life and Work by E.M. Standing, which was uh, came up for the first time, I think, in the 1950s and speaks about uh, developmental disabilities in a way we don't talk that way today. Right. <laughs> like, that is cruel. Those are not words that we use. So uh, just a heads up. Maria Montessori was born on August 31st of 1870 in Charavel, Italy, and that's on the upper calf part of the boot overlooking the coast. And her father, Alessandro, was in civil service, and her mother, Renilde, was charming, pious, and educated and well-read. That last part was something that wasn't entirely common among women in Italy at the time. The nation was newly unified and very conservative, with fairly rigid gender roles that kept women mostly in the world of domesticity and motherhood, with few opportunities for advanced education or other work. Maria and Renilde were very close, and from a very early age, Maria was focused on helping people who were less fortunate than she was. As an example, part of her daily chores included doing some knitting of clothing that would be donated to the poor, and this was something she didn't mind doing because she genuinely wanted to help. In her very early childhood, Maria wasn't particularly interested in excelling at school, but that started to change as she got a little bit older. Her parents wanted to find a better education for her than was available in their province. Eventually, Alessandro got a new post that allowed them to move to Rome. In spite of this move, Maria eventually had trouble getting the education that she wanted. 
Her parents encouraged her to become a teacher. That was one of the very few careers that were really open to women. But she insisted that was not what she wanted to do. I mean, going so far as to basically say literally any other thing (laughs) besides teaching. After discovering that she had a knack for math, she set her sights on becoming an engineer. But since schools for young women did not offer the kinds of classes she would need to actually do this, she enrolled in a technical school for boys in 1883. From there, Maria found a love of science, especially biology, and she decided what she really wanted to do was study medicine. This was even more unheard of for a woman at the time than being an engineer, and enrolling in medical school was an uphill battle, including a personal interview with the head of the Board of Education, who told her it would be impossible for any woman to study medicine. She persevered, though, and ultimately Maria Montessori became the first woman to study medicine in Italy. She also excelled at it in earning multiple scholarships and paying most of her own way by becoming a private tutor. But the challenges to her studying medicine did not end with the struggle just to become enrolled in medical school. There are lots of this part of her story that parallel our prior show on Elizabeth Blackwell, the first American woman to earn an MD. The story kind of becomes very similar when it is a woman trying to go through medical school. Uh, Montessori faced derision and harassment from her male classmates. And because it was considered improper for her to participate in dissections in a co-ed setting, she had to do all of her dissecting work alone in the evenings, surrounded by the other students' cadavers in a dissection hall illuminated by lamps and candles. This started to wear on her, and eventually she almost gave up walking out in the middle of her work one night and making up her mind to find a pursuit that would not seem so set against her. But on the way home, she saw a woman begging in a park, and the woman's child caught Montessori's attention. It was playing with a piece of colored paper with this just completely wrapped attention. Something about this scene really struck Montessori, and it gave her renewed determination. But it wasn't, as you might assume, to become a teacher. It was to complete her medical education, no matter what obstacles were in her way. When she graduated in 1896, she was the first woman in Italy to earn a doctor of medicine. At this point in her life, Montessori was also an advocate for feminist and social causes. This would continue to be true throughout her life. She was appointed to represent Italy at a feminist congress in Berlin the same year that she graduated from medical school. She also advocated for the rights of working women and against the use of child labor. In 1899, she went on a lecture tour on the, quote, new woman. This is a woman who was liberated from Italy's strict gender roles, able to work outside of the home, and not defined by stereotypes of feminine frailty and inferiority. Although Montessori's conceptualization of new womanhood offered far more freedom for women, it was still strongly connected to motherhood. In her own words, quote, eventually the woman of the future will have equal rights as well as equal duties. She will have a new self-awareness and will find her true strength in an emancipated maternity. Family life as we know it may change, but it is absurd to think that feminism will destroy maternal feelings. The new woman will marry and have children out of choice, not because matrimony and maternity are imposed on her, and she will exercise control over the health and well-being of the next generation and inaugurate a reign of peace, because when she can speak knowledgeably in the name of her children and in behalf of her own rights, man will have to listen to her. 
In her medical practice at this point, Montessori was focused on psychiatry, becoming an assistant doctor in the psychiatric clinic at the University of Rome. Part of her rounds included visiting Italy's asylums, in part to identify patients who could be helped at the clinic. A lot of the people that she identified were children. Specifically, they were children with a range of physical and intellectual disabilities, who at this point in history were often sent to asylums for mentally ill adults, where they got little to nothing in the way of education or treatment. I mean, it was basically a a dumping ground for any child who was deemed to be not, quote, normal in the words of the time. And it was in working with these children that Montessori started to form a theory of education connected to sensory stimulation and manipulating things with your fingers. It started one day when she found a room full of children supervised by a matron who reported that after their meals, they would get on the floor to search for crumbs. The matron was disgusted by this behavior and thought it was tied to being greedy for food. But Montessori, seeing that the room had absolutely nothing in it that could stimulate a child's hands and mind, instead interpreted it as a desperate search for something tactile to hold and manipulate. Through observing these children, Montessori began to see developmental disabilities, particularly ones that related to learning and intelligence, as a need for different methods of teaching, not as a medical problem or an untreatable lack of intellect. And from there, she started to piece together a system of education. And we're going to talk about that more after a brief sponsor break. As she started to consider an approach to educating children with disabilities, Maria Montessori began studying the special education theories of two doctors, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard and Edouard Seguin. And although Attar's work had included some truly questionable attempts to cure deafness, his methods for educating deaf children had been groundbreaking in France. He was also the person who wrote about the feral child who became known as the wild boy of Avalon. And Attard was also a proponent of the idea that children move through specific developmental stages and that their education is most effective when it's appropriate to each of those stages. Seguin, who was born in France and later moved to the United States, had written a book called, quote, Idiocy and its treatment by the physiological method, which theorized that developmental disabilities stemmed from issues with the central nervous system and consequently could be treated with exercises and sensory activities. Montessori found that her theories were compatible with Itar's and Seguin's. For example, she thought that children passed through, quote, sensitive periods in which they were particularly receptive to learning certain new skills and concepts. And she thought that sensory experiences were critical to learning. In 1899, she delivered an address at a pedagogical congress in which she stressed that children with developmental disabilities, quote, were not extrasocial beings, but were entitled to the benefits of education as much as, if not more than, normal ones. She started to promote something that was, at the time, completely revolutionary in Italy. Special education classrooms where children with disabilities could receive an individualized education that was appropriate to their individual needs. So as we've talked about in previous shows on special education and its history, today the goal is typically to educate children with disabilities in the same classroom with their non-disabled peers in the least restrictive environment that can still meet their needs. So even though she was advocating for basically segregated schooling for children with disabilities at this time, the idea of educating them at all was a huge step forward in Italy. 
Yeah, the difference between that and sending them to a mental asylum. We're grown-ups. Yeah. Uh, soon, Guido Bocelli, the Minister of Education, invited Montessori to come to Rome and deliver a series of lectures on special education. And she did. And in 1899, she was appointed co-director of a state school for children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Over the next two years, she worked tirelessly, both at the school and by traveling to London and Paris to study other theories of special education. She rigorously observed her students, evaluated what worked and what didn't, and then would refine her approach accordingly. And as she built on her knowledge and her methods, her students performed exceptionally well. Several learned to read and write well enough that they were able to sit for the same exams that were required of other schoolchildren. And as she was doing all of this, she was also doing a lot of other work, including having a medical private practice and being the chair of hygiene at one of Italy's two women's colleges, which she held from 1896 to 1906. This earned her a lot of praise, but Montessori found that it raised a lot of questions within her own mind. If her methods allowed her special education students to perform as well as their peers in regular classrooms, what did that say about the methods that were being used in those classrooms? Should non-disabled students have been performing even better than they were? So, in 1901, Montessori left the special education school in Rome. And at this point, she'd had a son, Mario, with the school's other co-director, Dr. Giuseppe Montesano. The date of Mario's birth is kind of unclear. It's often reported as March 31st, 1898. Montesano's family was against the idea of his marrying Montessori. And although Montesano did legally recognize Mario as his child, he also insisted that the baby be kept secret. Mario was sent to live with a wet nurse and then to a boarding school. There's not a lot written um, uh, about Maria Montessori's role in this decision, but based on her really sticking to what she wanted and thought was best um, in other parts of her life that we'll talk about later, it seems as though she would not have been, like, bullied into sending her child away like this this seems like it was a decision that like she also probably didn't want to marry him and thought that it would be best for another family to look after mario so with her son being cared for in the country in secret montessori returned to school herself She enrolled again at the University of Rome with the goal of furthering her education so she could create an education program suitable for all children. She studied pedagogy, psychiatry, anthropology, and educational history and philosophy. She became a professor at the University of Rome in 1904 and eventually became its chair of anthropology. During those same years, the world of education was also changing. During Montessori's childhood and early career, many schools in Europe and the United States were just dominated with memorization, recitation, and repetition. This might have had something to do with why Montessori was not particularly into doing well at it in her early childhood years. (laughs) Uh, But educators like Friedrich Froebel, the German reformer who coined the term kindergarten, had started to shift that model. More and more educators were starting to talk about making schools into more home-like, inviting places that engage children through their senses rather than just drilling them in recitals and repetition and learning things by rote to spit them back out again. 
And of course, this is a very simplified overview of education at the time. There were a lot of schools of thought that were going on about how children should be educated, particularly in early childhood during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But from Montessori's point of view, Froebel and other reformers had taken and were taking an approach that was too intuitive and romanticized. She favored an approach that she saw as more scientific, incorporating exact measurements of children's bodies that would be kept as part of their record, making clinical observations, collecting and interpreting data about what was working and what wasn't. In 1904, she had returned to lecturing on pedagogy, and she advocated approaching pedagogy through science to gather data and pinpoint successful strategies for education. Eventually, Montessori wound up with a theory of education that drew from all kinds of disciplines, including medicine, psychology, and physiological and cultural anthropology. This was an approach that was holistic and multidisciplinary, aimed at creating an educational setting that would nurture and inspire the creativity and desire to learn that she believed to be present in all children. Uh, the idea of physiological anthropology comes up from time to time in the context of the eugenics movement, because it's about like human physiology and how it relates to anthropology. It does not appear that Maria Montessori ever had anything to do with that movement. And uh, in fact, a lot of the things that she advocated were directly contradictory to eugenics. But unfortunately, because she had that physiological anthropology focus to some of what she did, there were people in the eugenics movement who like then picked up her theories and tried to advocate them as a, like a, a eugenics, uh, tool. She actually put all of this uh, theory into practice for the first time in 1907. A charitable society that was purchasing and refurbishing tenement properties in impoverished areas of Rome had approached her about starting a daycare in the neighborhood. Most of the parents who were living there worked, and children not yet old enough to be in school during the day were being left alone sometimes with basically no supervision because their parents just did not have the means to care for them while they were at work. The result was the Casa dei Bambini, a.k.a. the Children's House, which opened in San Lorenzo Quarter on January 6th of 1907, in one of the tenement buildings where the children actually lived. About 60 children were enrolled, and they were all under the age of seven. Montessori saw this as an opportunity not only to implement her teaching methods, but also to make a charitable effort to try to lift the residents of San Lorenzo Quarter out of poverty through educating their children and making it easier for their parents to comfortably go to work every day. Although her students were all from low-income families, she also foresaw a time when women of all social strata would want to enter the workforce, making the Casa dei Bambini a model for daycare and early childhood education among working families across the economic spectrum. In terms of the school itself, it was sized for children's needs, with tables, chairs, cabinets, wash basins, and the like all being sized down to their scale. She encouraged parents' involvement in their children's education, with periodic conversations akin to today's parent-teacher conferences. The children had a lot of freedom to learn and explore, but there was also a lot of structure. Montessori reframed the role of teacher as directress, today often called a guide, who helped children educate themselves in life skills, motor and sensory skills, and the typical reading, writing, and arithmetic. One of the most recognizable hallmarks of Montessori's educational methods was the materials that she implemented 
for helping children learn to build these, build these skills. For example, a set of cylinders of different sizes that fit into similarly sized holes in a wooden block. Her materials used colors, textures, sizes, smells, and sounds so that children could learn to distinguish between all of these and to recognize patterns. Rather than systematically teaching children to read and write, she supplied them with things like color-coded cardboard letters and numbers and counting rods of different lengths, which could be palpated and manipulated as children became cognitively ready to read and count. The directress did work with children as they used these materials, for example, sounding out each letter as children held and felt the cardboard version. But it was more about readying a child's mind for reading, writing, and arithmetic, and allowing children to teach themselves to do it, rather than sitting them down and instructing them. Basically, in Montessori's method, children were self-educating. The directress was simply guiding them in self-directing, self-correcting activities that made it possible for them to learn on their own. The directress was to tailor her guidance according to the, to the developmental needs and the readiness of each child and to their sensitive periods. And the students also learned about life skills and the natural world through things like helping to prepare, prepare meals and planting and tending a school garden. Casa dei Bambini was hailed as a huge success, and soon Montessori was working to put her educational theories into wider practice. We're going to talk about that more after we once again pause for a break from one of our sponsors. As we said before the break, Maria Montessori's first school, Casa dei Bambini, opened in 1907. Soon, she had established several other schools in Rome, both in the San Lorenzo Quarter and in other more affluent parts of the city. By 1910, her reputation was really growing in Italy, and she had started a school to train other directoresses. She had created a curriculum that was starting to be shared around the world. She left her position at the original Casa dei Bambini in 1911 with the goal of bringing her methods to more classrooms. Worried that her methods could be distorted or implemented in an ineffectual or damaging way, she did as much as she could to disseminate information herself and educate people on her methods personally. She wanted Montessori's directresses to follow her methods absolutely. Yeah, she really did not want teachers to be like, you know, I'm just going to take the Montessori method, but I'm only going to take these blocks and numbers and and those sorts of things, and I'm going to do my own thing. She she wanted people to follow exactly what she uh what she was advocating and what she was writing down. She did not think it was going to be effective otherwise. Uh, Maria Montessori used her medical and academic background to publish papers on the method in journals. She wrote what would become known as the Montessori Method in 1910, and it began to be translated and published in other nations. Its first publication in the United States was in 1912. She published Dr. Montessori's own handbook in 1914 and a two-volume work called Advanced Montessori Method in 1918 and 1919. Montessori was also Catholic and over the course of her life wrote several books uh, that were more religious in nature for children, such as, quote, The Mass Explained to Children. When I was a kid, I had a copy of that. Really? Yeah, that was like an old clunky, like, I don't know where it came from. I think it probably came from my grandmother's house at some point in time. But yeah, I had a copy of it. I don't know where it ended up. 
Oh. And I remember being like, oh, like it was actually quite helpful <laughs> to, exp- to explain all the sitting and standing and like what, you know. Uh, she also traveled extensively in order to lecture on her methods and train teachers directly. She visited the U.S. in 1913. Jane Adams, who was subject of a past two-parter here on the podcast, introduced her at one of her appearances in Chicago. That same year, Mabel and Alexander Graham Bell founded the Montessori Educational Association in Washington, D.C. President Woodrow Wilson's daughter, Margaret, was on the board of directors. In 1915, the Panama Pacific International Exhibition in San Francisco featured a glass house demonstration schoolroom for Montessori's methods. Her work and advocacy for her methods continued on from there. She did research in Spain in 1917 and started training directresses in London in 1919. Basically, Montessori was becoming an international movement, with she herself training people and traveling extensively to promote it and try to try to directly teach the people who were going to work as directresses in Montessori classrooms. It was also within these 19 teens years that she was reunited with her son Mario when he was about 15 years old. Mario was reportedly presented first as Montessori's nephew and then later as her adopted son. And although he did not really know his mother until his teens, he became incredibly devoted to her and he eventually became her successor. It cracks me up. Like it, there was more than one source uh, who said that Mario at first was like, Oh, this is my nephew. But I also couldn't find confirmation that she had any siblings. So that tickles me a little bit. Right. (laughs) Unless it's one of those, uh, you know, things where like close friends kind of become like family and people refer to their children as their nephews and nieces. But even so. Yeah. uh... So in 1922, Benito Mussolini, who had established the fascist party in 1919, became Italy's prime minister. Mussolini's Secretary of Education, Giovanni Gentile, approved of Montessori's methods. The first meeting among Mussolini, Gentile, and Montessori took place in 1924. Mussolini wanted Montessori's uh, name and reputation to help spread his fascist ideology and for her educational work to lift Italy's reputation. For her part, Montessori wanted the Italian government's backing to help spread her educational philosophies, by 1926, she had been made an honorary member of the fascist party, and soon the Italian government was supporting multiple Montessori schools and training programs. However, Montessori was still dedicated to the idea of keeping control of her educational philosophies and of educating all children, not just Italian children. She accepted the government's support in spreading her work as an educator, but she refused to have it aligned with Italy's fascist politics. In 1929, she and her son Mario established the Association Montessori Internationale, meant to unite the world's various Montessori programs and organizations. Montessori was named its lifetime president, with Mario working with her extensively. And this organization was headquartered in Berlin. The fact that it was in Berlin did not sit well with Mussolini, whose regime had become progressively more and more totalitarian at this point, and whose motto was, quote, everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Montessori, on the other hand, wanted to be an educator, as we said before, for all children. This was regardless of the children's race, ethnicity, or nationality. She refused to give this up and was increasingly vocal in her opposition to the government's fascist and totalitarian ideals. 
When the government tried to name Montessori Italy's children's ambassador in 1934, she refused unless the Italian government recognized her total control over the AMI. The government shut down several state-sponsored Montessori programs, and Montessori left Italy in exile. In 1936, Maria and Mario moved the AMI's headquarters to Amsterdam, where she continued to try to build a truly international system of education in which children from Europe, Asia, and North America could all be guided to teach themselves using the same methods. In her words, quote, there is no sense in talking about differences of procedure for Indian babies, Chinese babies, or European babies, nor for those belonging to different social classes. We can speak of one method, that which follows the natural unfolding of man. All babies have the same psychological needs and follow the same sequence of events in attaining to human stature. Every one of us has to pass through the same phases of growth. Montessori continued to travel in support of her work, and sometimes that travel was actually quite perilous. She was in Spain when the Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936. She was training Montessori educators in India in 1939 when Italy entered World War II, and as she was an Italian national in British territory, she was, for a time, confined to her training school along with her son. Eventually, though, she was allowed freedom of movement, and while in India, she worked with Gandhi to develop a curriculum for peace. After the end of World War II, the Montessoris returned to Amsterdam. In 1947, the Italian government invited her back into the country to reopen the the Montessori schools and training programs that had previously closed. Maria continued to work and teach until the very end of her life. In 1948, she returned to India, and in 1949, she made her first trip to Pakistan. She toured Norway and Sweden in 1950, and in 1951, she went to London for the 8th International Montessori Congress. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize six times before her death in a friend's garden on May 6th of 1952 in the Netherlands. She was 81 at the time. Montessori's teaching methods have continued to be really influential. There are at least 7,000 Montessori schools around the world today. Although since in spite of her efforts to retain control over training and certifications, in a lot of places, the name Montessori is not actually trademarked. So the number of schools calling themselves Montessori is actually a lot larger than those approximately 7,000 certified schools. As we noted at the top of the show, for some folks in the United States, Montessori School has this connection with the free-spirited parents of the 1960s and 70s, not with the turn of the 20th century. And this is because while the Montessori method was growing in popularity in much of Europe and parts of Asia, in the United States it actually fell out of fashion for a while after its initial introduction in the early 19-teens. Between 1910 and 1914, Montessori education gained a lot of attention really quickly in the United States due to its apparent success in classrooms, and because people were drawn to Montessori herself as a person and, edu- and as an educator, she was very charismatic and energetic in how she talked to people. Her method had also come from Europe, giving it a layer of prestige in many American minds. <laughs> it's European. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like that has quite the same <laughs> uh, connotation today as in 1914. A lot of this attention, though, was from the general public, parents who had heard about Montessori's successes with disadvantaged children in Italy, who had learned to read by age four and seemed exceptionally happy in the classroom. 
Some of this attention came from articles in magazines, notably McClure's. Publisher and editor Samuel S. McClure was a huge proponent of the method, although his business relationship with her to that end was kind of fraught and it eventually unraveled. Doctors, scientists, and other experts from outside the field of education also wrote about it quite favorably. A portion of American educators, though, were vocally critical of Montessori's methods when they were first introduced. Her theories were often described as being commonplace in the United States 25 or 30 years before. By the time of the English language publication of the Montessori method, Friedrich Froebel's concept of kindergarten was widely implemented in the United States and had been for decades That meant that the child-sized classrooms and child-centered learning that were common to both kindergarten and Montessori were not really novel in the United States the way that they had been in some other nations. In the words of William H. Kilpatrick of Teachers College, Columbia University, who published a highly critical The Montessori System Examined in 1914, quote, Madame Montessori belongs in the history of American educational theory, essentially along with the writers antedating 1880. In several fundamental respects, she is some 30 years behind the best of our present. Some educators also criticized Montessori's work in the 19-teens as failing to engage children's imaginations, prompting Anne E. George, one of the biggest proponents in the United States and the translator of the Montessori method for English in its uh, first U.S. publication to counter, quote, The Italian educator, it is said, makes the mistake of bringing the children too closely to the earth, as distinguished from other methods which encourage imagination and deal in fairies and knights and imaginative games. Dr. Montessori makes the children see the world as it really is. To her, a block is a block, not a castle. The hands and fingers are anatomical structures, not pigeons. The children learn real geometrical forms by their right names, triangles, squares, circles, ovals, not as symbolic abstractions. So for the first few years after its introduction in in the United States, Montessori education was a bit of a flash-in-the-pan fad. But quickly, dedicated Montessori schools dwindled, especially after the United States entered World War I. Yeah, that it's from Europe prestige meant something quite different when World War I started and it became it's from Italy. Yeah. However, in the 1960s, there was a resurgence in interest in the Montessori method in the United States, led by a combination of factors, including its focus on child-centered learning and a renewed focus on getting children, especially children from low-income and at-risk families, uh, into academic excellence sooner. It was the same window that, like, the Head Start program was first launched. Like, there was just a lot of focus on American children need to be achieving academically earlier than they are. And then, as we said at the top of the show, some kind of free-spirited parents. Uh, today, about 4,000 of the 7,000 accredited Montessori schools worldwide are in the United States. That's Maria Montessori. This whole episode makes me want to go play with blocks. There's some pretty great blocks. And colorful letters. <laughs> it would be great. Well, and one of the first jobs that I had out of college, I wrote copy for a educational catalog. Um, and we had this sort of corner, like this one page of things that were basically the the blocks and letter shapes and cylinders and things like that that are part of the Montessori method. Um, and I remember just having all of these conversations about like, we can say... <laughs> 
these are appropriate for a Montessori classroom, but we like we could not write the copy to be like, you'll be a Montessori teacher with these great blocks. Oh, right. Like for a lot of people, they're the most recognizable hallmark of Montessori school, but that's a, a, there's a whole philosophy going with those blocks. <laughs> Do you have a philosophy of listener mail? Uh, I have. We're going to call this Corrections Corner. Okay. Uh, it's been almost a month because of the holidays. Since I recorded, since I, like, since I was the researcher on an episode. Um, and so that, that means we have a couple of things that need to be corrected and we're going to just put them all today <laughs> rather than spreading them out along more than one episode. Um, the first is about our unearthed part one where we talked about the HMS terror and we got several, uh, notes along these same lines, and I'm going to read just one of them, and this is from James. James says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. First off, I wanted to thank you for doing the podcast. And in the Unearthed Part 1 segment on the confirmation of the HMS Terror's location, mentioning the oral histories of the indigenous peoples of Canada's north that had already marked the location of the ship. If it's not too rude, I just wanted to make a mild correction. The indigenous peoples in Canada's Arctic, including the man who told the expedition where he had seen the ship's mast, are the Inuit, not First Nations. It might seem like a mild topic, but the Inuit are often miscategorized or lumped in with the other indigenous peoples, and the issue can be fraught with emotion. I know I can chafe when the Métis, of which I am a member, are miscategorized. A quick down and dirty guide to Canada's three constitutionally recognized indigenous peoples is First Nations, broadly equivalent to the American term Native Americans, representing the three 634 federally recognized tribal governments or bands. Métis, a distinct aboriginal slash indigenous people who arose from the intermingling of traders, trappers, settlers, and the indigenous people who would later be recognized as First Nations. There are distinct Métis nations by province. I'm a member of Alberta's Métis nation. Because we're a separate culture and people, a Métis person isn't just someone who has both indigenous and non-indigenous ancestry. They have to specifically be someone who is ethnically Métis. Inuit, the indigenous people of the North, broadly equivalent to the U.S. terms Native Alaskans, but representing different peoples. So someone who is Native Alaskan likely would not consider themselves to be Inuit or the reverse. Thank you for taking the time to read this, and I apologize if I repeated information you know, or if I spoke at all condescendingly. I really appreciate how your work works to reinsert the contributions of marginalized people into history where it belongs, and I hope my email can be taken in the same spirit. As an Indigenous person who writes and consults on their representation in media, I just thought I would share my perspective to prevent any accidental miscategorization. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great day, James. Thank you so much, James. Yeah. <laughs> the apologies are so unnecessary. This is the exact type of thing that we really want to get right and try hard to get right. And I was genuinely not aware of the, the nuances. Um, like previously we had gotten notes. I think it's this couple of years ago. We had used the word Native American when talking about Canada and we got some notes that said, uh, in Canada, we use the term First Nations. Yeah. Absolutely not aware that there were further nuances to that. So, like, this is the exact type of thing that we want to hear about and want to be um, correct on. And it was absolutely not condescending or rude <laughs> at all uh, in any way. 
So thank you again so much, James, for spelling that out so clearly and concisely, because as I said, I did not know that, and I apologize for my ignorance. Uh, we also have some notes about the conversation that we had with Eric Lars Myers about beer. Um, this is another thing where we've gotten a, s- several different tweets slash Facebook comments slash emails. And so rather than reading any one particular one, I'm just going to clarify a couple things. We got several notes about whether references to wine in the Bible were really about beer. Uh, and lots of these notes basically said, well, we definitely know that it was wine because there were wine. Okay. We did, we definitely do know. There was wine in biblical times. We also definitely know that there was beer in biblical times. And we know all of these things through like lots of other writing and archaeological evidence and art and like lots of evidence for all of these things. What we don't really have is separate words for all of these types of alcoholic beverages uh, in the Bible. So... It's not completely clear whether everything that's translated today as wine was really made out of grapes. So we were definitely not trying to say there was no wine in the Bible. Like, that's that's not what we said. Um, and regardless, the ancient wines and beers and all of the other fermented beverages that existed probably would have been a lot different from what we think of today. Like, we talked about that on that show a bit. Uh, Eric had also said in the beer episode that he had no idea whether he was making up the date that the Reinheitsgebot was revised to include yeast after Louis Pasteur's work in the 1850s in Strasbourg. Uh, Pasteur was doing a lot of research into yeast's fermentation of sugar, specifically in the 1850s, but it was not until the early 20th century that the Reinheitsgebot was revised to include yeast. Um, there were also a whole lot of other scientists working with yeast at that point. So Louis Pasteur is not like the be-all, end-all of yeast discovery, for sure. Uh, I kind of now just want to do a whole episode on the history of yeast, which could be fascinating, uh, but maybe only to me. Uh, lastly, we all definitely know that Plymouth is in Massachusetts, we in fact have pictures of Pilgrim Monument in Provincetown, Massachusetts, taken with my camera. On our Instagram. <laughs> this is a known thing. Uh, so that's basically correction corner for today. Uh, some of those were not really corrections. They were more like clarifications. But um, thank you again, James, for writing. Thank you again, Eric, for being on the show. I had a super fun time talking about beer with Eric. If you were, uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then on social media, we have the word missed in history that is basically everywhere. It's on Facebook and Pinterest and Tumblr and Twitter and Instagram, all of those things. Our name is missed in history. Uh, we have also started doing some videos. We have four of them now. They are all on our website and we have been sharing them on our social media also. So you can come have a look at those. Um, and that is at our website, which is missinhistory.com. You can also come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com and learn all kinds of stuff about education and teaching methods and all kinds of things. So you can do all of that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or missinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 